Well, good to see everybody this morning. Welcome to church on this Sunday. It's good to see you guys. Uh, We are in a series right now called Relentless Joy, and uh, I'm glad you're here for this. We are into our final three, uh, the final three of this series, the final three sessions of this incredible book of Philippians that we have been looking at. There's so much in here that has to do, has to speak into the way we act, uh, into our emotions, into our thought life. I don't know about you, but my thought life was challenged a little bit this past week. Uh, how many have got their Christmas tree up already? We've got some people with the Christmas spirit in the house. Yeah. We had a, last year, we had a, a sad little Charlie Brown tree, and Mel said that won't work this year. And so we got us a brand new tree, came in the mail, took it out of the box, putting it all together. The family's all there. We got the Christmas music playing, and we plug it in. And guess what? right there in the middle where everybody can see they don't, the lights don't come on so my first instinct was to borrow some fireworks from James and Sharon Johnson take the tree in the backyard and blow it up because that's just kind of like oh you know it's that moment like for real it's such a cliche the lights don't work but you know I had to like make a choice okay am I going to just like freak out about this or am I going to remember you know Jesus is the reason for the season and all that kind of stuff you know all those <laughs> It would, you ever have somebody come up and tell you, hey, but remember, Jesus is the reason for the season. You just want to punch him in the neck, right? So, but we're, we're constantly challenged with um, our thought life. Every single day, everywhere you go, you're going to be challenged every single day with your thought life. Other things that will happen really great. You know, your thoughts are through the roof. For instance, yesterday, the Longhorns won. Who, I mean, who? an amazing thing happened. We have like no Longhorn fans in here. We live in Texas. This is amazing. Like my horns won. I had to call all of my Baptist friends, I mean my Baylor friends, and say, I'm so sorry. That was a joke. Um, So Michigan State fans in the house over here, I know. Yeah, you guys did good. Iowa, I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I think maybe we have one or two people from Alabama around there we go, yeah. Alabama, they're, if they just keep practicing, maybe they'll be good someday. Anyway, my goodness. Let's get spiritual. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're in chapter 4 today. We're going to be looking at verses 8 and 9. Hallelujah. Father God, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for your goodness and your mercy. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the ability to come and study your word and hear what you have to say to us. Not only what the writer Paul has to say, Father God, but we know your Holy Spirit has something to say. And it will will be life-changing if we will let it. So I thank you, Lord God. Give us all the courage here this morning to keep our ears open and just to our hearts open and to listen to what you have to say to us, Father God. We, We pray for your voice, not my voice, but your voice to speak into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Verse 8, finally, brothers and sisters. I love how he begins this paragraph with finally. It's not really the final thing he says, but it's an old preacher's trick. You say finally or in conclusion, and then you just keep talking, right? (laughs) Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if 
anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. A few of us in here have probably heard this scripture. It's kind of one of those, it's on the top 10 list, right? It's on the best of album for Philippians. It, there's, there, Philippians is full of these amazing scriptures. But I really want, I want us to buckle up this morning, because as I was studying this out, I was asking the Lord, just, Lord, show me that thing. Show me what, you know, because, I mean, I've heard this, everybody's heard this, sounds like great advice, but show me that thing that, that I want to dig in there and, and find that maybe we didn't know. I think there's something going to be unexpected about this verse that may surprise some of you. Now, first of all, just on its own terms, that's great advice. It's great medicine, isn't it? Right? It's good, practical advice from your Uncle Paul, right? It's, it's the kind of advice you want to get on your grandfather's knee in the rocking chair. He's going to tell you. That, you know, think about these things. Think about good things, pure things, honest things. So on one level, Paul, is, uh, he says that in the midst of a life that can really be full of stress, full of anxiety, because of all the things happening to us and around us, there is a way to somehow displace this anxiety apparently. It's, it, and it's not some kind of weird form of denial of the thing. He's not calling for that. It's not pretending that that stressful thing doesn't exist, but it's a way to displace the emotional tension and anxiety that, that we all face by intentionally introducing certain streams of thought into our lives. That's what Paul's saying here on the surface. Things that are good, things that are lovely, that are right, that are worth thinking about. Um, and I want to suggest to you this morning that our culture is not designed, or rather, it is designed specifically for you not to think about what is right, what is worthy, what is excellent. It is designed for you not to think about what is praiseworthy. And here's what I mean by that. I, I would suggest to you that every single one of us, by living in this culture, we are being manipulated all the time, right? I'm not trying to sound paranoid, but as they say, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you, <laughs> right? We are being manipulated all the time. Our culture is designed, it's, by, it's a design of our culture. It's, it's intentional. There's something going on. How, let me ask you, how does a news organization ensure the highest possible ratings when a story hits comes out. They make sure they have the most graphic footage, right? They, they make sure they, they feed you the worst news possible, and they have commentators on that give you the direst predictions, right? No news organization ever looks for the commentator. They'll come on and go, yeah, I think it's really going to be okay. This thing that happened really doesn't affect most of us. That doesn't happen right? The news organization knows what gets eyeballs. How many, how many, adver what do, what, how do advertisers of every product on the planet get you to buy something? Everybody used products this morning. We're all wearing products. How did they get you to buy those products? We all brushed our teeth this morning with a product. We all bathed, most of us, <laughs> bathed with some product that they told you you had to have. How do they get you to buy something? By preying on your fears of what could happen if you don't buy that product, right? Or preying on your anxiety of how much happiness you are missing out on by not buying this product. Fears, anxieties, right? 
How does any of the candidates for president or any office, how do they get you to vote for them? By painting the worst possible picture of what will happen if you don't, right? There's never been a candidate that walked out and said, I'd like you to vote for me, but if you vote for the other side, probably won't make that much difference. You'll be all right. They never did that, right? I, I haven't heard that candidate yet. It's always, if you don't vote for me, you're all going to die, right? You are going to die. Like on November 5th, you will all die if you don't vote for me. So all of them, right? They're all like the pelican in Finding Nemo. Jump in my mouth if you want to live. Vote for me if you want to live. How do they get you to invest in a stock or some kind of precious metal? By telling you, the economy could crash tomorrow. It's, there's, like, money's not going to be worth anything. You have to invest in this. You have to buy this. You have to do something, right? I would suggest that fear is the engine that runs the world. Fear is the engine that runs the world, the modern world. And if, I'm telling you, if you don't figure this out, all of you, I'm telling you as a friend, if you don't figure this out quickly, you will become an anxious terrified emotional mess if you don't realize you are being manipulated because the fear is the engine that runs the world we might put it the other way that fear is the predominant currency of our culture it's the currency of our culture think about this 300 years ago people lived half as long as they do now right old people were like 35 you know what I mean People lived half as long. They experienced infinitely less freedom, social security, safety, fewer rights, more disease. And guess what? It's an interesting thing. I looked into this. The studies in, into their writings and their, you can look at their newspapers and their journals and their diaries and the way people really lived back then. When you study out their lives, they lived with a fraction of the stress people live with today. You could die at any moment back then, right, from catching a cold. And they lived with a fraction of the stress that people live with today. On average, they experienced the, the hours between waking and, sleep, and sleeping with less deadly anxiety. Now, they had concerns, but that deadly anxiety that's just always there percolating beneath the surface that so many of us live with, and we don't even realize it anymore because we think this is like normal life, right? Because someone has intentionally plugged us into the engine of fear, right? That's how the world runs. Why is this? Why 300 years ago, living half as long with more diseases, less freedom, everybody pretty much lived under a despot in the world, how, how did they live with less stress? Well, one, one reason, and we won't talk about today, but one reason I believe is because they did have a healthier, more developed sense of community. I think people lived in community and they depended on each other. Today we're very scattered. We're kind of all over the place. But the main reason is because our world runs on a new engine. And this engine is manufactured fear. We run on the engine of manufactured fear. Now, a large part of that is due to media. We have access to media that the human race has never had access to before, right? You know what is happening in the country of Chad yesterday. You know, you know, because we have access to to media. Um, quite simply, we know more news today than is probably helpful for us to know about. It probably doesn't help you to know about everything happening in the world. I'm not saying we don't want to uh, 
be concerned and pray and that sort of thing. I'm talking about just the knowledge of what is happening to every person on the planet is more knowledge than is actually helpful for you. But at the same time, this news that's being fed to you, you have to understand, it's being fed to you with a slant, with a purpose. And the purpose, it is a fearful way, it is a fearful perspective that is way out of proportion to what is personally relevant to you. Okay? It may be, tr- it, it may be true what they're saying. Is it personally relevant to you? Not often, right? Here's an example. In the months, um, September 11, 2011, we were, I think everybody in this room was probably just about, was alive. September 11, 2011 was such a, uh, 2001, was such a, just a watershed moment, right? It, it was a pivotal point in Western culture. Everything changed on that day. The way we see the world changed that day. What we realized was possible changed that day. And if you remember right after, you know, in the days that followed, all the planes were grounded. And then gradually, you know, in the following week, they started allowing the planes to fly, right? The planes got back in the air. What's really interesting is thousands of people in the months following September 11th, they've done these studies, thousands of people chose to drive across country rather than fly across country. Whenever they had something to do, we have to go to grandma's house, let's drive. Right? People kind of made that decision come January and February and those kind of things. And why? It was be out of a fear of terrorism, a fear of flying. As a result, one study estimates that an additional 1,600 Americans died in traffic accidents in the months. They went up by 1,600 Americans who died because they decided to get on the crowded freeways rather than fly. Even though, statistically, even factoring in terrorism, flying is, is safer than driving. But fear does that to us. It makes us make decisions that aren't rational, per se, but they feel safer. They feel like it's something we need to do. Fear drove people to get in their cars and risk the crowded highways of America. And, and that's how terror works. Terror works because it creates fear that is out of proportion to the actual danger relevant to you. You understand? This is, this is just kind of a fact. Terrorism works because it creates fear that is out of proportion to the danger relevant to you. Okay? Um, I'm going to tell, tell a rare joke. Here we go. You can tell how rare this is because I'm announcing it. <laughs> it's not the way you usually tell a joke. I'm going to tell a joke now. Um, so there's this five-year-old little boy named Johnny and he's in the kitchen, and his mom is making dinner. Uh, don't stop me if you've heard this. She asked him to go down to the basement, get a can of tomato soup. She needed a can of tomato soup to make dinner. Go down, Johnny, go down a little in the basement, get the can of tomato soup. Johnny's like, it's dark down there. I don't want to go down to the basement. It's scary. It's scary. She said, Johnny, I need the tomato. Go get the can. Johnny persisted. He's like putting his tiny little foot down and saying, it is scary, it is dark, I don't want to go down there. Finally, the mom's like, okay, okay, you know what? Go down the basement. Jesus is going to be with you. He's going to be with you in the basement. You can go down there. So he trudges over to the basement door, opens it up. It's really dark. He's still scary. But he gets an idea. He goes, hey, Jesus, if you're down there, throw me that can of tomato soup. That's good. Johnny's smart. So, 
So scripture gives us the, this wonderful way. So here we are, we, you know, uh, yeah, we live in this culture of fear and all this. In comes scripture. It gives us this wonderful wake-up call to be intentional about our thinking. See, we have to be intentional. This won't happen by accident. To be intentional about our thinking rather than giving in to anxiety. Find those places, it says. Find those places uh, wherever you can to bring to mind good thoughts, things that, are, things that are worthy of encouragement, things you can celebrate, things you can say, did you see this? This is amazing. Those things. Look for those things. Finding this in all sorts of, in all sorts of places and all sorts of different corners of our lives. Look for these things. Be seekers of the good. Be seekers of it. Imagine what would happen in, if the church, imagine what would happen, what the world would say if Christians weren't known for being the, the screaming, fearful, reactionary segment of our society, but instead we were known for being who the world could run to for encouragement, for hope, for salvation. Imagine if the church was that segment of society right? Why do you think that first century church way back then exploded in such a time of terror and horror going on? It was an evil time. Why do you think the church exploded? Because they were where the hope was. They were the voice of encouragement. They were the voice of salvation, that there is salvation to be had, that there is good, right? That God created the world and called it good, right? What if we were known for being people who sought out the good and the pure and the lovely to celebrate. Now, think about that for a second. Here's where the scripture's really cool. This is what's really cool to me. It might be kind of the unexpected thing on this, in this list that Paul gives us. When he's talking about this list, when Paul's talking about this, things that are, they're very practical things, right? Whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure. It turns out these phrases that he uses are not common at all in the New Testament. In fact, some of these words he uses are found nowhere else in the entire Bible. Nowhere else in the New Testament, the Greek words that he uses. It's really, really interesting. If you, in fact, most scholars agree that Paul is borrowing some language. He's borrowing a list of words that was very popular in Roman culture. Roman culture. This list of words. It's a list of concepts. I mean, think about that. This is a list of concepts from... A pagan philosophy of the day, the pagan philosophy, right? Some of the famous Greco-Roman thinkers that we know of today, even we know their names. They created this list. It was like a list of virtues for people to pursue, these good qualities for people to pursue that they believed sort of signified a good moral character. And Paul is importing these words from that pagan culture. It's the same culture that Paul acknowledges in other places that it is full of evil stuff that we ought to flee, pursue, avoid, right? That same culture. But he takes, what Paul does is take what is the very best about the culture, its way of thinking and acting as citizens. He takes the best of it and says, now guys, here's an example that, of, of, of a way of thinking that is completely in line with Jesus. Actually, this is, this is in line with Jesus, it's completely in line with what is good and pure and right. This is Christ-like stuff here. Now, this is fascinating to me. I, I don't know. It may not be to you. But to me, this is fascinating. And he encourages people to dwell on these things. You know, as Christians, we're, we're not often known as, these, you know, as Christ followers, as people who will go out and find things in our culture 
that are worthy of celebration. How often do we do that? How often do we go out and find things in our culture worthy of celebration? For us, culture is usually a dirty word, right? We spend a lot of weeks in here talking about trying to reveal the, you know, the things that are harmful within our culture. You know, I just did. I just talked about the fear that is rampant in our culture. But how often do we spend time looking for the good in our culture? Things that are worthy of holding up and saying, look at this. This is a great example of kingdom principles leaking through even our secular culture. Kingdom principles leaking through. And, and I think that's rooted, the reason why we don't do that, ironically, it's rooted in our fears. It always comes back to fear, doesn't it? It's rooted in our fear. In this case, it's this pervasive fear a lot of us have that to affirm something in culture, something that you know, comes from a different perspective, a different philosophy, if we affirm anything good about that, people will misrepresent that as approving everything else about that philosophy, right? I, have you ever had that concern? I don't know if I can really say something good about this thing because then people will think I'm like all in on this thing. And so what we do as Christians, we, cont- we tend to create this sort of parallel world, this sort of us versus them dualism. We withhold our affirmation of anything that comes from the other camp. This is so popular. I mean, this is so rampant. I mean, think, look at politics. Right? You can't, people of one party will hardly acknowledge anything that the other side is doing well, right? They, well, they made one good decision. Nobody says that, right? Right? We don't do that in politics. Ethics, science, right? We're, well, we, can't, we can't acknowledge anything in science because some of it's bad or something like that. Politics, religion, uh, sports, right? <laughs> I mean, I, I can't hard, you couldn't get me to tell you one good thing about the Oklahoma Sooners. I just can't do it, right? They might be really nice guys, but it's hard to say. It's hard, it's hard to speak those words. Let me suggest to us this, that the God of this universe, the God of the universe who designed the world, designed it to be very good. He said that. He said, I designed this world and I designed it very good. And it was good. And I want to suggest that God's fingerprints are still all over this creation, right? He said, just walk outside, right? The hills and the trees, glory in him, right? His fingerprints are all over this creation. His fingerprint is still etched even on the heart of mankind, the word says, wherever wherever we're from. In fact, in one letter, Paul says this in um, Romans when he was writing to them. He wrote, indeed, when Gentiles, when he says Gentiles, he means people who don't know God, When Gentiles who do not have the law, and for him he's referring to scripture, who do not have the law, do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. This is really interesting. Paul is saying here, it is possible there are people who don't know the true God, don't have the scriptures, they may sometimes, like, stumble into doing what scripture says in some occasions because it's written into the heart of man, right? It's written into the heart of man from the very beginning. Even people who don't know anything about God are capable from time to time is of living as God created us to live. Why? Because God's truth is everywhere. He implanted it within us, right? Ecclesiastes says this. 
He says, he has also set eternity in the human heart. Isaiah, the prophet, the, says that the angels proclaim, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The whole earth is full of his glory. That word glory is this uh, Hebrew word kavod. And it means weightiness, like weight and significance, right? So the whole earth is drenched with the presence of God. It's full of his glory. The writer David said this. He said in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Later he prayed this. Where can I go from your presence? Where can I, from your spirit, where can I flee from your presence? It's everywhere, right? God is everywhere. It's his world. It is his world. The writers of scripture, they understood that there isn't like the world's truth and then God's truth over here, right? They, they understood, as one scholar put it, the, the late um, Arthur Holmes, he said, all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. Now, I'm not saying everything is true. I'm saying everything that is true is God's true truth. And he was paraphrasing Augustine, who said, wherever truth may be found, it belongs to the Lord. All truth is God's truth. There is only God's truth. That which is not truth is what? A lie, right? It's false. There's truth, and there's lie. So just because the pagans say two plus two equals four, doesn't mean we have to come up with our own more godly answer, right? (laughs) Well, that's not going to do, <laughs> right? The Greeks said four. We have to think of something more spiritual. No, four is the godly answer, right? Even though, even if somebody else came up with it before us, right? It's the answer. It's God's truth. So we don't have to fear truth. The truth has nothing to fear from scrutiny. Now, that's going to be a revelation for some people. The truth has nothing to fear from scrutiny. We don't have to worry, for instance, about what science may discover, for instance, because guess what? That is God's truth. He owns it. Right? God is the original scientist, created the world, created everything. It's all his. So whatever science comes along and discovers, if, if, if it's the truth, it's God's truth. And, and he created it all. And if it's something even that we're a little late to the game about, no worries. We don't have to worry. We might need to adjust our interpretation of Scripture from time to time, just as they had to, you know, a couple hundred years ago when they finally it became obvious that the world was a big ball going around the sun. It was not a pancake with dragons along the edge, right? That was a big deal. <laughs> not a pancake? Not dragons, right? That was a big deal. So, so what? We, we, adjusted, we adjusted our understanding not a big deal. See, I'm a firm believer in this. Hear my words. I'm a firm believer that scripture is flawless. Flawless. Our interpretation often isn't. Okay? So that's okay. Because we're not God, are we? No. God's scripture is flawless. We're not. It's all good. But see, often as Christians, we're known more for what we're against. So we're against than for more for that than for celebrating what we see good in the world. And when we define ourselves by what we're against instead of what we celebrate, what happens, the danger is that we cut off any hope of dialogue that might open them up to the gospel, right? We cut off dialogue. Paul, 
He's so brilliant at understanding this. He does this in Acts 17. You, you guys, some of you know the story. In Acts 17, he goes to this place in Athens. It's this little market, marketplace called Mars Hill. And it was sort of a, a public park, kind of a, a 24-7 open mic night, right? Where everybody could get up on their soapbox and they just philosophize to each other. Here's what I think. And they would talk for a while and then someone would shout them down and someone else would get up on the box. And this is, it happened all the time. The Greeks loved it. Right? So they, he goes to this place, and he sees them all. What's remarkable is that Paul is trying to explain to this group of people that they believe in hundreds of thousands of gods. Right? He's trying to explain to them that there's really only one God who made everything, who made everybody. And he observes their hunger and their thirst for spirituality. And he uses it as an opportunity to talk about Jesus. And at one point, he's talking about how God made us all. And he says to them, for in God we live and we move and we have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, that wasn't from Old Testament. That's from some Greek poet. As some of your poets said, we are his offspring. He borrows from a pagan poet. And their poets don't even, the one who said that didn't even believe in the God he's talking about, right? They were talking about some other God. But Paul takes their statement and makes it about God. This is amazing. Now, how can he do this? Because all truth is God's truth. It's all God's truth. This, this affirming and claiming of truth, wherever you find it, it's found throughout the writings of Paul. In 1 Corinthians, he tells his readers, all things are yours. And then he says, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So essentially, he says to them, guys, it all belongs to God, and Christ is of God, and you're of Christ. So it's all yours. If it's truth, it's yours. We can own it. We can grasp it. We can call it our own. Right? So we're to think on things above. Spiritual truth. When we, think, when we see this scripture, think on things that are pure, that are good. We often think about spiritual things, right? Well, that means, like, I, gotta, I need to think about the Bible all day long. Just think about the Bible. And that's true when we want to think of spiritual truth. We want to think about godliness. But what this shows me is that we can also... Can we also appreciate a beautiful piece of furniture? Sure we can, right? Or a, or a gorgeous piece of music. Or a really tasty chicken leg. <laughs> you bet, right? Because that's God's truth right there. He created that chicken, right? <laughs> he, made, he made pigs out of bacon. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. <laughs> He's the author of truth. He's the author of beauty. He says, if anything, anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. I want to tell you a story. There's this famous uh, violinist by the name of Joshua Bell. Some of you might have heard of him play. The instrument that he plays with is pretty famous. It's this Stradivarius violin. It's valued at three and a half million dollars, this violin. He's a world-class musician, uh, and he's played for the, some of the world's top orchestras, right? Correct me later if I say anything wrong. <laughs> Uh, he's, he's played with conductors all over the world. He's played for presidents. He's played for royalty. He's, he's a big deal. It's not unusual for his concerts to be sold out completely. And his ticket prices are like average, like $100. Why? Because it's beautiful, right? And people will pay a lot to experience true talent and true beauty and art. Well, 
they did something. In 2007, the Washington Post set up an interesting little experiment. Let's see, there it is. It's an interesting experiment they set up. They disguised Josh Bell, famous guy, as a regular everyday street performer and placed him in the Washington DC subway, right? Like he's just a, you know, kind of like a beggar playing his violin down there. And they had him perform for almost an hour, all recorded on hidden camera. You can go to YouTube and see the full thing. And you know, you would think that people going, you know, to ride the subway or something like that would see this and be like awestruck and just like stop what they're doing and you know, their bags would fall on the ground and they'd just be, you know, slain in the spirit. This is amazing, right? Um, they would, or, or at least they would realize who this was or be struck by how beautiful this music was. And they would stop and listen. But no, of the over 1,000 people on the camera that they showed who passed by, seven stopped to listen. Seven people took some time to stop and listen to this. He said his total haul for the afternoon was $32 in tips, right? Considerably less than what he made a few nights later when he actually did the same set at a sold-out concert. Most people paid zero attention to him. Most people didn't even recognize him. They said one person, one person recognized him. Why is this? Because as, as human beings, see, we are wired to recognize beauty when we're expecting it. When we expect, we can recognize it, but it's harder for us to see it out of context. We don't see beauty. We don't see truth out of context so easily. So what does that have to do with us? For us, we can easily recognize truth. We recognize God's beauty and his truth when we're in church, right? We're in the Lord's house, right? We call it that, even though we're really the Lord's house. You know, we're in church. We can easily recognize God's move. But you know God is moving all day, all around you, right? We, I mean, we, that's not news, a newsflash. He's, he's out there too, right? He's everywhere. He's out there. Truth and beauty can happen all around us every day. The earth is full of his glory, the psalmist said. So what can happen is that Here's where we, the next step we could take this, is we, we, we not only don't recognize what is true and pure and lovely and praiseworthy outside the church, but we start to get this idea, we start to believe this lie that God only shows up on Sunday morning. And we f- forget to worship God throughout the week. Because, well, he's there on Sunday. That's where God shows up. We forget to thank him for all the good things in our life. And we don't recognize his beauty in everyday miracles. How many of you get up early and have to go to work? You have to be early risers, right? How many of us, that routine sunrise on the daily drive becomes so familiar that we neglect to thank God for the new day, right? Or worse yet, just having to be up that early is a nuisance. Or we get so annoyed every time we have to like mow the lawn that we forget to pause and marvel at this microcosm of life that's in the grass. Or how many of us, how many of us focus more on winning some argument with our spouse than with praising God for the blessing of this human being who inexplicably loves us and stands us, right? We get focused on the argument. Some folks think that the church is the only context in which to experience God. 
like this is the grand concert hall. This is where God comes to entertain us on stage. But all the earth is the Lord's. All the earth is the Lord's. That is his stage. All the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof is what we're told. Everything, everywhere is full of his fingerprints. Everything is context for God. Everything is, is God in context. This is what's known as, as living an awe-filled life. It's the opposite of an awful life. <laughs> you don't live an awful life. Live an awe-filled life. And an awe-filled life is going to lead to worship. You can't help yourself. An awe-filled life is going to lead to thanksgiving, a heart of gratitude. You can't help yourself if you're living an awe-filled life. So Paul says there's plenty in the world to, worth thinking about. Plenty in the world worth thinking about. There's a lot of good in the world. As Christians, we have not cornered the market on good things to produce, right? In fact, there's a lot of things out there that are like Christian that we probably ought to ignore. <laughs> the scholar Ben Witherington III, what a name. He said this, Paul is calling for Christians to be sifters, not rejectors of their larger culture. I want us to think about this for a minute. Paul is calling on us to be sifters, not rejectors of our culture. Sifters. You ever watch archaeologists dig for dinosaur bones? What does an archaeologist do? What do they, they, you know, they want to find a bone more than anything in the world. That just, like, makes them so excited. That just, like, makes their whole day, right? Do they run out into the field and just look around for a bone sitting out in the open? Oh, another dinosaur bone, found it, and they grab it. Is that the way they find them? No, right? They get down into the soil. They dig, and they got these big mesh screens, right? And they sift, and they study the dirt intently. They're studying intently, looking for the prize that they imagine is buried in the rocks and the earth. They're looking for that prize, right? Because they know it's in there. So they're sifting for it. See, Christians, you and me, we ought to be, we ought to be the most eager seekers of truth and beauty in the world. We ought to be known for that. Seekers of truth and beauty. We ought to be the least skeptical people on the planet, right? We believe we are loved by someone who is unseen, right? That takes faith. So why, do, why does the world often think of us as the world's biggest skeptics? We should be the ones who know there is good behind the pain. We should be the ones least skeptical, the ones who know there is hope around the corner, right? We should be the ones who know, hey, there is a birth going on in that manger in there. There is a resurrection happening behind that gravestone. The least skeptical people on the planet, the ones who seek good and true, what is true and noble and lovely and praiseworthy. We should be the ones who are most ready to celebrate what is good. Uh, C.S. Lewis said that art, real art, we should all, we should all be, every, he said every Christian should be a patron of the arts because what is good art but a glimpse of heaven leaking through the tapestry of this earth. A glimpse of heaven leaking through. We should all appreciate it. So this means that we as disciples, we can engage culture. 
We can engage culture with tools for evaluation, right? We're like the dinosaur bone hunters. We have our tools for evaluation. We're going to engage culture. We're going to walk intently and with discernment, not just blindly reject everything said by the world, but we also don't just blindly jump in and splash around and say, it's all good, because it ain't all good, for sure, right? There's, there's definitely, but we evaluate and we discern and we navigate based on Jesus' teachings. We navigate these waters based on the leading of the Holy Spirit and with the help of the wisdom of community, of each other. I think of these three things as filters that equip you to sift and distinguish between right and wrong in our culture. These are filters. I'm going to repeat these things. I'll, let's, let's list them so you can see them. These are the filters that equip you to sift and distinguish between right and wrong in our culture. First, the teachings of Jesus. The teachings of Jesus. Now, that doesn't just mean uh, reading and knowing a lot. It doesn't mean just having a good knowledge of Scripture, although it, it includes that. We need to have a good knowledge of Scripture. But it also means consistently going into the world around you and practicing his teaching. The teachings of Jesus are a tool for us to sift and discern in our culture. Okay? Knowing the teachings, putting it into practice. The second thing I said was the leading of the Holy Spirit. This is so crucial. So crucial for us today. This this requires an active, vibrant prayer life to be led by the Spirit. You've got to be a prayer. You can't never pray and just expect the Holy Spirit to lead you. It just doesn't work, right? I'm ashamed to say I've tried it, <laughs> right? I was like, oh, do I really have to pray all the time? Maybe God will just lead me anyway. But no, you, you, come, you become deaf to his voice. Prayer is, is one of the things that opens up your, your, your heart to recognize his voice, a vibrant prayer life. Also, taking uh, daily practice to discern his voice. It takes practice to discern his voice, right? There are times when you're a new Christian, you'll feel like, I think God told me to do this. And you'll find out later, no, that was really, really dumb. God didn't tell you to do that, right? Uh, and so that just happens through time, maturity, right? Just live Christian living. And so you practice discerning his voice. That's all the leading of the Holy Spirit. And then the third thing, this is so important, is the accountability that we enjoy from active participation in community. Something very, very important for us all. Active participation in community gives us accountability with believers. I'm talking about community with believers. This is why community with believers is so important because, man, come on, you can get really goofy all by yourself. If you're just figuring stuff out alone, you can come up with some really goofy ideas, right? We need each other to go, yeah, no, that ain't right. <laughs> Come back. Come back, right? We need each other. We re- so so we, re- we rely on the collective wisdom of other disciples. The, the community is important. Now, as you might have noticed or guessed, we have a word for each of these things. Outreach, upreach, inreach, right? It's our mission. As sifters of a larger culture, and we all live in a culture, as sifters, we must become adept at distinguishing between those things that are life-giving and true and beautiful and those things that are destructive and false. Okay? 
it's important for us to, to, to grow up and learn these things. Amen? Amen. All of that was just verse 8. Isn't that amazing? This is why we're only doing two verses today. And here's verse 9. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. Now, Paul says, see, I've unpacked these things, these teachings of Jesus. And as you've seen me practice this in my daily life, Paul says, use this as a lens. Use this as a filter. Use my life as a filter to go out as Christ followers and navigate this world around you. To discern and evaluate what is good in our culture. Over and over and over, Paul reminds us, guys, that the life of the believer is not just a life of thinking good thoughts. Although that's important. He just spent verse 8 telling us to do that. But that's not all there is. Right? That's half the mission. After we have become verse 8 kind of people, we got our thought life in the right place. We're thinking on what is good and excellent and worthy of praise. We need to take that next step and become verse 9 kind of people. People who do what we hear. Now we have to put it into practice. A lot of us are verse 8 people. Fewer of us are verse 9 people. Put it into practice. Do what we hear. Verse 8 is happening to you right now. See, you're sitting, we're all sitting here. We're all uh, listening to some really good preaching. <laughs> I'm just kidding. No, 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 no. I'm, just, I'm totally kidding. We're all listening to good preaching. And, and if we could see all the intentions that you have inside you right now, we'd be really impressed, right? We would be like, that dude is awesome. Look at those good thoughts he is thinking. He's right now, you're right now, you're making yourself like a little list. I'm going to start doing this and this and this and this. Great. That is awesome. Great intentions, great thoughts you're thinking. We're so impressed. Where it matters now is what are you going to do now? When you walk out these doors, are you going to take what you've learned and received and heard and put it into practice? Are you going to train your mind? Because this is your choice. Nobody here can make you do this. Are you going to train your mind not to dwell on the fears and the worries of this world, but instead be mindful of Christ? Be a person of gratitude, as we talked about last week. Are you, that's up to you. Are you going to do that? Are you going to train your mind not to be a person of fear, but be a person of gratitude? Because here's the promise. If you do that, the second part of the verse, and the God of peace will be with you. The God of peace will be with you. A God who brings us a peace, what did we say last week, that totally transcends understanding. It blows your mind. It transcends understanding. It, it's beyond understanding. It guards your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. It guards your heart and mind in this new Christ-like pattern of thinking, feeling, acting, right? That new phronesis. The God of peace will be with you. See, God's promises are wonderful, but very, very often, his promises depend on your choices. We know that, but sometimes we don't know it, know it. His promises depend on your choices very often. If you do this, then he will do this. We see that all through scripture. If you will do this, I will do this. If you think this way, you will have the promise. If you pray to your father with thanksgiving, then his peace will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. If you think and focus and celebrate things that are true and noble and of good report and lovely and pure and praiseworthy, then you will experience the peace and presence in your life. 
if you find, find anybody right now, think, think about somebody who is a, a person of exceptional peace. Anyone, I guarantee you, point someone out who is a person of exceptional peace, and I guarantee you that that peace is fueled by an exceptional thought life. They're not peaceful because nothing stressful happens to them. That's nobody. They're at peace because their thoughts are filled with gratitude. They're at peace because they're focused on what is lovely in the world. Right? They're focused on what is lovely. And we can take precautions, and we, we want to do that. We want to be people of wisdom. I'm not saying that. But where our focus is on Jesus and what is lovely in the world, it's intentional, and it doesn't happen by default. It's not our default setting. Amen? Amen. In conclusion, <laughs> finally, brothers and sisters, let me leave, I'm going to leave you with the scripture. I really, I really am bringing this to a close. <laughs> Romans 12. Paul says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you. Who wants to know God's will for your life? Man, we want that every day, right? God, what do I do? I got this decision. What do I do? Then you will know his will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. That's, that's an awesome promise right there right? But it's also an if-then statement, right? Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you, what? Think. think. Change the way you think. Look, I understand it would be a whole lot easier for all of us if we just cloistered ourselves together, like bought some land up in Wyoming, you know, fenced it in. We all lived together. It'd be great. We didn't have to deal with the world outside till Jesus comes. But we're not called to that. That's not what we're called to. We are called to engage our culture. Engage it. Not to embrace everything about the culture, definitely not. But to be lights in the darkness. To be salt in the food. Right? You are salt and light. Right? Salt and light isn't living in a thing in Wyoming all by itself. Salt and light is a part of culture. It's in the culture. You make everything better. Do you see? what God meant for you to be in this world, you make everything better. You ought to make everything better. You help people to see. You make everything yummier, right? So don't avoid the world. Light it up. Make it yummy. That's what we're called to do. Now, will it get messy? Yes. <laughs> yes, it will. Will you encounter lots of weird, awkward, gray areas? Yes. Should I do this? You'll ask the staffs this question all the time. Should I do this or should I go here or should I avoid this? Yes. You will encounter all that stuff. Let me ask you this. Do you think it is possible to go out into all the world and preach the gospel like Jesus said, navigate the waters of our culture and remain pure? Do you think it's possible? He wouldn't tell us to do it if it weren't possible. He wouldn't tell us to do it if it weren't, right? But we have to be armed. We have to be armed, not to fight against sinners, but to guard, guard our hearts. This is why we are armed. We arm ourselves 
Amen? We arm ourselves with the teachings of Jesus, with the leading of the Holy Spirit, and with the strength and wisdom and accountability found in community. You have all that? You're good to go, right? You are armed to navigate the waters of culture, to sift through the dirt of culture and look for those beautiful things. Otherwise, otherwise, we're going to fall into one of two traps. And the two traps are this, just real fast. The two traps are religiosity, which is where I just make all these decisions for you, and I make it real cut and dried, and so you don't have to think for yourself. You don't have to think for yourself. You don't have to be led by the Spirit. Just come ask me, and I tell you what to do. You know, uh, we, we could do that. We could just live by a bunch of man-made standards of righteousness, come up kind of with our own law, and, and live a life of sin management. Right? That's a possibility. That's religiosity. It's a trap, by the way. Or it's the trap of worldliness. That's the other ditch we could fall into, right? Which is where you just wade into the waters of our culture without being armed, and you pr- pretty quickly lose the love and the passion for Christ that you once had. Equally dangerous. I invite us all into a third way of living around here. That is to be fearlessly engaged with culture. Faithfully engaged with, in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And humbly engaged in your spiritual community. Engaged. Engaged fearlessly with culture. Engaged in a growing relationship with Jesus. And engaged humbly in a relationship with your faith community. That, my friends, is one of the secrets to living in relentless joy. Amen? Amen. Father God, we thank you, Lord, that you are so faithful to us. You have sent us out, Lord. You have sent us out into the world. Sometimes it's like you have sent us out into a den of wolves. And we, your sheep, need you to protect us, Father God. But you have armed us. You have armed us with your word. We thank you, Father God, for the precious word, the Bible, the scriptures that that you have given us that we can arm ourselves with. And you have armed us, Father God, with this beautiful Holy Spirit that we can ask into our into our hearts to be baptized with and be led by this Holy Spirit that will speak words of life and guidance and wisdom and will show us the next right step to take in every situation. You have armed us with this, Father God. And I thank you, Lord, so much. You have given us each other. You have given me all these people in this room to help me on my journey, just as you've given me to them to help them on theirs. I thank you, Lord God, that we depend on each other, we rely on each other, and that we look to you, Father God, to protect us and give us wisdom as we do navigate the waters of our culture, Father God. Help us to see your miracles happening everywhere around us, to see the little things happening that are a miracle, the great big things that are a miracle, Father God, the things that you've just blessed us with, Father God. Help us to be people of gratitude that just remember all the things that we have to be thankful for. Help us to see and recognize what is pure and lovely and noble and of good report and praiseworthy and help us to concentrate our minds on those things in Jesus' name. Thank you, Father God. Amen. Amen. All right. And uh, if you need anything at all you need prayer about, be sure to come forward and let these guys pray with you in faith. They'll pray with you. They know how to pray. They're like prayer ninjas. These guys are prayer ninjas. That's what I like to call them. Otherwise, you guys have a wonderful week, and we will see you later. Bye-bye. The Lord, the Lord is calm. Let earth receive the King. Let